This is The Guardian. Today, what was behind the extraordinary appeal of Jacinda Ardern and why her star was starting to burn a little less bright back home. I'm entering now my sixth year in office. And for each of these years, I have given my absolute all. I believe that leading a country... It came as a complete shock last week when Jacinda Ardern was holding a regularly scheduled press conference. It was the first post-caucus meeting of the year. And the expectation was that maybe at best she'd announce an election date would be the main news of that day. And so today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election and that my term as Prime Minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February. This has been the most fulfilling five and a half years of my life. I think it was a huge shock to almost everyone watching. The reason she articulated was that effectively she'd run out of gas, that she knew what the demands of the job were after six incredibly challenging years. I know what this job takes, and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. It's that simple. It's not often that the resignation of the Prime Minister of New Zealand leads to global tributes. But Jacinda Ardern was a rare phenomenon. At a political moment dominated by crude populists, almost all of them men, Ardern offered hope that it didn't have to be that way, that seemingly decent people could rise to the top. I hope in return, I leave behind a belief that you can be kind but strong, empathetic but decisive, optimistic but focused, that you can be your own kind of leader, one that knows when it's time to go. So what does her decision to hand over power today, citing burnout in the job, tell us about that hope for a more decent politics? And why in an election year were polls showing that Ardern was on track to lose? From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, what was behind Jacinda mania? And why did it end so suddenly? Tess McClure, you cover New Zealand for The Guardian, and there may be some of our listeners who are surprised that we're focusing on the scandal-free resignation of the Prime Minister of a pretty small country. But why are we? What is it that makes Jacinda Ardern different? Yeah, Ardern has certainly achieved over her term a level of recognition and attention that's completely disproportionate, really, to New Zealand's size or its influence on world affairs in a practical sense. And that began close to the beginning of her tenure as Prime Minister when she was elected as a very young woman, I think the youngest uh, female elected leader at that point, and then went on through her Prime Ministership to face these immense crises and deal with them in ways that had particular international resonance. Please welcome back to The Late Show, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. 
Um, she was the kind of prime minister that would go to the US and end up on Stephen Colbert's show. Lovely to meet you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Just to get out your CV here uh, as quickly as possible, currently the youngest female world leader. She went viral for joking during an earthquake on live television. Just having a bit of an earthquake here, Ryan. Quite a quite a decent shake here, All but right. um, if you see things moving behind me... Has it stopped, The Prime beehive moves a little more than most. Right, so she was a complete global sensation, and we'll get into why, but firstly, how did Jacinda Ardern get into politics? So she got into politics quite early through Helen Clark's office, who was New Zealand's first elected female prime minister, and then came in as an MP in 2008. So it's quite a young politician. Members, I call the Honourable Member Jacinda Ardern. Maiden speeches are a bit like words spoken in a heated argument. Like it or not, they will come back to haunt you. So today I want to share with you... Um, she said at the time that she was propelled into politics by some core social issues in New Zealand, so particularly child poverty rates, which are very high here. She credited with being one of the things that propelled her to get into politics and to try and achieve legislative change on those issues. And there is much to change. The fifth Labour government made good progress on what I believe must continue to be our focus, reducing poverty in this country. Labour ensured that... So Ardern emerged as the leader of the Labour Party when they were on a short runway to an election that they were almost universally expected to lose. Moving at uncharacteristically high speed, Labour completely changed its leadership team this morning. So Andrew Little is out and the 37-year-old Mount Albert MP takes the reins of an embattled Labour Party just seven and a half weeks out from the general election. She was chosen as a promising and a talented but a relatively inexperienced MP to take on that leadership. Everyone knows that I've just accepted with short notice the worst job in politics, <laughs> um, but I've, I also welcome this job. And almost immediately started to prompt a shift in those polls. Labour's fiery new leader has invigorated the opposition and is going after the young and the disillusioned vote. Housing affordability is the worst we've seen in such a long time that... And an enthusiasm for her leadership that, at the time, I think, bemused some political observers. Her opponent called it stardust and what was intended as an insult, but was probably quite an accurate descriptor of the kind of charisma and also the kind of draw that she achieved over the public in that time. There were days when there were people lining up around the block outside shopping malls to take a selfie with her. In New Zealand, it was called Jacinda Mania. And she achieved... A real turnaround in Labour's polling still only managed to just scrape that election through a coalition victory. I called it the worst job in politics. <laughs> I was wrong. The last seven weeks have been nothing but a privilege. What do you think at that early stage the public was seeing? What was it that was at the heart of what would soon become this global phenomenon, Jacinda Mania? 
I think at that stage, the kind of talent and skill set that came out over and over again over her prime ministership was starting to emerge. So that ability to connect with people on a very human level, to communicate in kind of an instinctive way, in a way that would resonate emotionally. Excuse the casual uh, attire. Um, it's a can be a messy business putting toddlers to bed, so I'm not in my work clothes, so forgive me for that. I do just want to prepare um, everyone that um, because of the lag with COVID-19, the time from... But was also able to speak to some of the big political problems of the day, the big challenges facing New Zealand at that time, and to also promise transformational leadership in a way that felt convincing and compelling. Another of the reasons why she became so well-loved internationally was because she was so relatable to so many people, especially young women trying to navigate stressful jobs with the demands of family in a world that, even in a country as progressive as New Zealand, remains very sexist. How important was that part of her identity to Jacinda Mania? Yeah, I think there was certainly the sense of pride, at least among some parties, that New Zealand had a young woman in leadership, particularly when she became pregnant during that first term and her daughter Neve was born. And she was pictured on the world stage again at gatherings like the United Nations with Neve as a, as a baby. It was not officially take your daughter to work day at the UN, but one world leader still made a statement. Here's Tony DeCopo with Diaper Diplomacy. This unexpected scene. The fact that that was a rare sight, and also the fact that it was clearly resonating in a global way, I think, added to some of the pride within New Zealand. She would face these sexist questions at times from the media, and she was also talented at batting away those kinds of questions and comments, often with ease. The question is, is it okay for a PM to take maternity leave Uh while in office? It is totally unacceptable in 2017 to say that women should have to answer that question. Uh, Prime Minister Ardern, yeah, a lot of people will be wondering, are you two meeting just because... You know, you're similar in age and because my there first, is... I mean, my first question is, I wonder whether or not anyone ever asked Barack Obama and John Key if they met because they were of similar age. Okay, so she manages to turn the Labour Party's fortunes around in a matter of a few weeks. But once she becomes Prime Minister in 2017, what kinds of challenges does she face? Not long after she was elected, the first major challenge of her term came, which was the Christchurch terror attack. It was the worst terrorist attack in New Zealand's history. A white supremacist gunman killed 51 Muslim worshippers at prayer at two mosques in Christchurch. There were these immediate images when she arrived at the mosque following and was pictured in hijab, uh, embracing the family members, the surviving community members. And she sketched out the bones of a speech that became very famous on an A4 piece of paper, scrolled down a few phrases, one of which was, they are us. 
they have chosen to make New Zealand their home and it is their home. They are us. The person who has perpetuated this violence against us is not. They have no place... Which became kind of the backbone of that speech, which focused on very directly embracing the many of the immigrant communities, refugee communities that formed those attacked, and also trying to outline in an aspirational way a vision of New Zealand in which that kind of Islamophobia, that racism that had propelled the attack was unacceptable, had, had no place in that vision of New Zealand. I can tell you one thing right now. Our gun laws will change. And her response wasn't just at a rhetorical level. She followed up immediately with commitments to support the families and the survivors financially and with bipartisan gun control legislation. So achieved cross-party support to heighten New Zealand's gun control, uh, a ban on almost all military-style assault weapons, semi-automatic weapons across New Zealand. You know, even President Obama couldn't do that in the United States after the the massacre of children at Sandy Hook. Australia experienced a massacre and changed their laws. New Zealand had its experience and changed its laws. To be honest with you, I do not understand the United States. And Ardern's response to that, that day and in the weeks that followed as well, I think really began to define her legacy, both in New Zealand and on the world stage. I mean, that was such a magnificent response to something completely monstrous. And I wonder if, as well as just being excellent on its own rights, if part of the reason why it contributed to this this feeling that she was someone different was because of the kinds of leaders who were on the world stage at the time. And I'm thinking of people like Donald Trump, like Jair Bolsonaro. And what I'm wondering is, how big a part of her appeal was it that she seemed like a normal and decent person at a time where politics was filled with people who didn't seem very normal or decent? Yeah, I think there's certainly a sense in which she presented such a strong contrast and such a strong foil to some of those characters, not only in the sense of being able to respond to a mass shooting with kind of immediate promises of change that were actually followed through, but also being able to respond in an empathetic way, in a way that rang true, that I think probably set her apart from some of the leaders elsewhere that were seen as least capable of doing that. Another challenge that engulfed every government over the past few years was the COVID pandemic. How did Ardern handle that? What kind of impact did it have on her prime ministership? Yeah, so when the COVID-19 arrived in New Zealand, Ardern took immediate and decisive action that was very unusual internationally at the time. Um, New Zealand had just witnessed effectively health system collapse in Italy and in other places. From 11.59pm tonight, we will close our border to any non-residents and citizens attempting to travel here. This will stop... And began that strategy of eliminating the virus in-country until New Zealand had effectively vaccinated the vast majority of its population. It was an 
unusual decision. It was a controversial decision overseas. It was one that she was almost immediately able to rally New Zealanders around. I think she was able to, in the same way that she did during Christchurch, respond in a very direct way, in a very human way. So she ended those that initial press conference with words. We will get through this together, but only if we stick together. So please be strong and be kind. And they resonated with New Zealand as they became a catchphrase of that early pandemic year, and particularly as the strengths of it became apparent when New Zealand was achieving very low death rates, had effectively wiped out the virus in-country, was able to maintain normal life. It helped her to achieve enormous popularity in-country. So those policies were achieving approval rates of over 80%, which is, when you think about the level of intervention in people's lives, is incredibly unusual for a government to be able to achieve that kind of support for a decision like that. Together, we went hard and early to fight COVID. Our plan now is to rebuild the economy even stronger. We'll create new jobs with infrastructure and environment. So she walked into the 2020 election in the middle of that crisis, and it was really a referendum on the COVID response. In the end, it wasn't even close. Tonight, New Zealand has shown the Labour Party its greatest support in at least 50 years. More than the Prime Minister could have hoped for. We will not take your support for granted. And I can promise you, we will be a... Which was overwhelmingly rewarded by New Zealand voters. It was the first time in many decades that a major party in New Zealand has won a majority in an election and in what's usually a very coalition-based system. Tess, one thing I'm wondering is, what did New Zealanders make of Ardern's outsized international reputation? What did they think of the fact that their prime minister had such a devoted following overseas? I I think there were a mixture of responses to this, maybe particularly in the first term of her government. There was a huge amount of pride in New Zealand uh, that the country was making such an impact on the world stage, that it was world-leading in a number of senses. Uh, I think as her term went on, that relationship with the world stage became more complicated, particularly as dissatisfaction grew among some communities particularly that the government wasn't delivering on all of its promised returns. The the divide seemed to grow between the way she was perceived internationally as a progressive star and what that government and what her leadership were able to achieve at home. Yeah, tell me about the way she actually governed. Like she was clearly an excellent national figure and leader, but Was she a great policymaker? To her credit, on some things she did achieve successes, so on child poverty, that central issue that she said drew her into politics. The government did improve that over every measure, so there were some victories. But there were certainly some areas of 
reform where her government really struggled to achieve what it had set out to do and what it had hoped to do. And that was partly, it was hamstrung to some extent by some of the pathways that Ardern ruled out early on in her tenure. So she ruled out significant changes to the tax systems through a capital gains tax or a wealth tax. She wedded herself to fiscal responsibility rules, which meant that it was very difficult for her governments to implement very costly or large-scale social programs other than the COVID response. And that meant on some of the issues that the government had run on that were ongoing challenges for New Zealand, particularly the housing crisis, which meant large numbers of people were sleeping in cars, were in temporary housing. The government struggled to achieve what it, what was hoped and what it had really promised in those early years of campaigning. It sounds like for all the ways that she was progressive and such a refreshing presence on the world stage, politically, she was a politician of the centre, someone wedded to fiscal discipline, trying to incrementally change things, unwilling to try anything too radical. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's certainly fair. And that's partly in that first term when she came in as part of a coalition, she was very clear that she would try to govern for all New Zealanders. But in that second term, after the immediate COVID response, when her government had won a majority, which is incredibly unusual in New Zealand politics, and there was a really strong sense of mandate for that government, I think there was a, certainly a disappointment from progressives that there weren't more radical steps emerging from her, from her leadership. Tell me about the aftermath to, to COVID, how her, her leadership fared as her government and the country began to struggle with the same cost of living issues that we now see hitting everyone. How did that impact on her popularity? Yeah, so her and her government started the pandemic with this kind of stratospheric popularity, which was very unusual. And that started to decline really as the pandemic continued. It was kind of expected that it would return to Earth at some point. But then over the last year, that was exacerbated by cost of living pressures that many countries are facing. So high inflation rates, which drove up mortgage rates in New Zealand, quite dramatic increases to food prices, so up more than 11% year on year. Um, as those pressures started to bite there was certainly a souring of the public mood and her polling dropped steadily over the last few months. Well, new polling has revealed New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has suffered her lowest preferred PM ranking since becoming leader of the Labor Party in 2017. Pete, it's very tight and no doubt it's going to be making Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern a little anxious this morning as you mentioned that... Most polls were indicating that walking into an election tomorrow... Ardern would lose. Mm, Jacinda mania no more. Jacinda mania is what some people <laughs> called the end of that year. In fact, I'm not leaving because I believe we can't win the election, but because I believe we can and will. I know there will be much discussion in the aftermath of this decision as to what the so-called real reason was. I can tell you that what I'm sharing today is it. 
Tess, as Jacinda Ardern pointed out in her speech, her decision to resign is one that has sparked off a lot of speculation about why and, and whether there were other reasons for it. What do you think contributed to her decision to, to quit last Thursday? Yeah, so there are two kind of material factors that I think are worth considering. One is that she'd consistently polled poorly over the last year. And the other major factor was that toward the tail end of the pandemic, the small but very seething subsection of New Zealand society had been enraged by the COVID response, by vaccine mandate policies, by lockdown policies, many of whom had become embroiled in conspiracy theories. And there was a core had emerged of incredibly abusive, vitriolic, threatening rhetoric that was almost constantly aimed at the Prime Minister. So there's certainly some evidence in the rhetoric coming from those groups of influence from overseas groups. So from the United States, there's some of the similar kinds of conspiracy theories around the New World Order that might be more commonplace. So at the start of last year, some of those conspiratorial movements exploded into a physical occupation of Parliament lawns that went on for weeks. Pure pandemonium at Parliament. A protest pitched as peaceful, coming to an end that was anything but. There were many people threatening to put Ardern on trial to see her hung or executed for crimes against humanity. So there was a, a full crossover of that online rhetoric into the real world in a way that I think came as a shock to many New Zealanders and had quite a substantial impact at the start of the year. So Ardern said that that didn't contribute, that wasn't a contributing factor in her stepping down. But I think for many New Zealanders, there's a question around that. The actual reason she gave is a really interesting one. She said that at the end of the day, she had run out of gas in the tank, that basically she was just burnt out on the job. And that's incredibly rare for a world leader to make that kind of admission and to voluntarily give up power. How, how is that being received in New Zealand? I think it's, it came as a shock to New Zealanders. I also think the majority of New Zealanders would probably accept her explanation for why she's stepping down. Is that after going on six years of some big challenges, I am human. Politicians are human. We give all that we can for as long as we can, and then it's time. And for me, it's time. For New Zealanders watching her outline those reasons, speaking to her partner and her young daughter about being there for the next few years. And so to Neve, Mum is looking forward to being there when you start school this year. And to Clark, let's finally get married. I, I think that also will ring true in the same way that the kinds of appeals and the kinds of statements she's made under immense pressure in the past have rung true. In a sense, it's like people loved her because she was normal and relatable. And I guess six years in a high-pressure job, it's like normal at the end of that to say, I'm done, I've had enough. 
Yeah, I think particularly after the pandemic, there's a lot of people for whom that will ring true, that sense of having run out of gas in the tank, having reached some of the limits of what you're able to achieve or, or give to a role. Coming up, where to next for Jacinda Ardern? Tess, Jacinda Ardern officially left office today. She's been replaced by a new leader, Chris Hipkins. Remains to be seen if Hipkins mania will be a thing. But beyond the power of Ardern's example, as a leader during incredibly difficult periods, what do you think her legacy will be as a prime minister? I think increasingly as distance grows on her term as prime minister, those moments will remain the standouts many of which were a combination not only of rhetoric but of policy decisions. The COVID response was, as well as a moment of saying be kind, was one of the most consequential decisions a Prime Minister will likely make. So those moments, I think, will continue to resonate. Some of what she tried to articulate and achieve in doing politics differently, cultivating a politics that was perhaps kinder, less focused on point scoring, remains to be seen whether that will have an enduring impact on New Zealand's political landscape. And do you think that as well as being hugely popular internationally, being a kind of counterpoint to the kinds of leaders who have dominated the world stage over the past five years, what do you think other progressive parties around the world could learn from Jacinda Ardern? I think there is still a very strong sense in which Ardern offered up a vision of progressive leadership internationally that was genuinely compelling at a moment where it felt like a number of progressive parties, governments were struggling to connect with voter bases, struggling to win elections. The things that she brought to that role, her, the values that she articulated I think will continue to resonate on the world stage, the way she responded to moments of huge vulnerability or violence in New Zealand, do offer up a compelling model or sense of possibility for world leaders that is still rare to see. Yeah, I mean, just be kind, be decent, be a normal person. Oh, it's much easier said than done. Indeed, yeah. And finally, Tess, Jacinda Ardern said she was leaving to spend more time with her family, but do you think this is the last that we'll see of her in public life? I think it's clear that if Ardern wants to continue on political stages in New Zealand or perhaps more likely overseas on the international stage, it's very likely that there'll be room for her there. Yeah. UN Secretary General Jacinda Ardern? I guess we'll wait and see. Tess, thank you so much. Thanks so much. It's been really nice to talk to you. That was Tess McClure, The Guardian's New Zealand correspondent, whose work you can follow at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.